This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. So, Anyway, let's get to it, folks. Today's guest is just objectively amazing. John Silver, host of the Tikva podcast, is here. It's going to be a great conversation. And to set the stage for that, I want to talk about thinking long term. So let me break this down for you. The Israelites are rescued from Egypt. God splits the Red Sea for them, protects them from enemies, provides them literal manna from heaven. That's where that phrase comes from. Gives them the Ten Commandments amid thunder and lightning. And after all of that, within about 10 seconds... The Israelites have built a golden calf and they're busy worshiping idols. What? How? And I think the answer is pretty clear. God, as he appears in the Bible, is pretty scary. The Hebrew Bible, in fact, is the first religious tradition in history to assert that God was completely and totally above nature. Every other god in the ancient world was a storm god, a sun god, a god of the sea, or what have you. So the Israelites have this radically transcendent god who they find really intimidating and really unpredictable. And so the only way they're comfortable relating to him is through this prophet, through Moses, right? They don't want to hear the Ten Commandments directly. After the first two commandments, they ask Moses to do it for them. But then Moses travels up Mount Sinai after the Ten Commandments to receive the law from God. And he's there for 40 days. And the Israelites freak out. They feel totally alone, totally remote from God. And so, inexcusably but understandably, They fall back on the same old solution every other people in the ancient world had for feeling close to the heavens. They built an idol, a golden calf. But that's where things get interesting, because after God expresses his anger, Moses is essentially able to communicate that the problem here is that the Israelites want to have a relationship with God. That's what humans want. But if they need to rely on Moses to make that relationship happen, then there's no way this arrangement will last more than a single generation. Because who the heck knows when the next prophet will be born after Moses? So if the Israelites are going to actually have an enduring relationship with God, if the monotheistic revolution is actually going to last, then we need a long-term solution for how to make that happen. And it's at that precise moment, according to ancient Jewish tradition, that God commands the Israelites to build a temple so that he may dwell among them. And the temple, in other words, is the Hebrew Bible's solution for the long term. It's what transforms the fleeting spirituality of Sinai into the eternal religion of Jerusalem. The Bible taught humanity that societies are strongest when they're willing to think in long time horizons, when they're able to see themselves as just one moment on a long continuum from past to future, from our great-grandparents to our great-grandchildren. It's that kind of thinking that encourages us to invest in society's long-term health. So have we forgotten this in America? Are there those who still remember? And either way, how can we recover this sense of long-term thinking for the next generation? So here to talk about all of this is one of the most thoughtful people I know, an amazing political thinker, the editor of Mosaic, and host of the popular Tikva podcast. Guys, John Silver is here with us. John, thanks so much for being here. Rabbi Lamb, I'm happy to be with you. So, folks, this is not only a treat for me because the illustrious John Silver is amazing, but it's also important to me personally. He was my teacher back when I was a Tikva fellow, so I'm very excited to have you here, John. This is really great. And so here's my first question for you. So much of the technology that defines today's world encourages you to think about the now, right? So Facebook's standard prompt for a post is, what's on your mind? 
And the trend from there has only been to compress further the amount of time that we care about, right? So like Twitter's response to Facebook was too many words. Your thoughts need to be shorter, right? And I like that Twitter forces you to be concise, but I think for most people, it just encourages you to think much more in the moment, right? Instagram and TikTok are visual and video ways of doing the same thing. And Clubhouse now, and look, I actually think Clubhouse is great, but it is designed to make sure conversations only happen in the moment. No recording, no formal afterlife. And you could probably make the case that we're the most in-the-moment society that's ever existed. So what does this mean for us? What are the consequences? What are maybe the advantages? And what do we have to think about? I think that the question of technology puts before us the question of freedom. Because the technology, of course, enables us to be as short or long as we like. I'm struck that there is a force in the internet that wants to compress everything, exactly as you say. Facebook posts to be effective have to be really short. And Twitter makes everything short. And it does contract our time horizons to what's on our mind at this very moment. And at the same time, things that I would have never predicted have gained popularity that is shocking to me. So there are some long-form podcast discussions like yours, Rabbi Lamb, that precisely because they try to break out of the force of the internet, make possible discussions that are quite a bit longer. And and yours is, and mine also in the Tikva podcast. And your, I was going to say, yours is a, an exemplary version of that. So we talk with our, with our guests, you and I, for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, sometimes an hour. But there are podcasts that have hundreds of thousands of listeners that go for two hours, three hours. So it seems like there's something in the market audience that is sending signals that we're not only happy with the pressures of compressing everything into the moment. It seems to me that we shouldn't let the technological forms that are presented to us just be the end of the story. We can also push back and vote with our feet. We can like and demand more long-form writing. We can like and demand more subtle, long-form discussions. And I think that we're starting to see the market enter into some of that. Can I just go back to that marvelous introduction that you gave, though? Let's do it. Because I think it opens up into the thing that's most on my mind and the thing that I'm most worried about. This last year, we lost in Rabbi Sachs. Right, the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, an incredible luminary, incredible Jewish luminary. You know, really one of the most talented spokesmen for Jewish and biblical ideas in the English-speaking world. And that we lost him was a real loss, not only for us, Ari, you and me, but for all people who care about the moral spirit and his interpretation of the, uh, of the text that you're thinking about has to do with building together. Mm. And so um, he enters into the whole question of why do the Israelites build a temple as an answer to a social problem. Rabbi Sachs' interpretation of the temple is that you have people who disagree with one another, who are not yet formed into a nation, thinking about putting his head into the existential experience of the slaves wandering in the wilderness. And he says, how do you turn these people, quarrelsome, stubborn, stiff-necked people, how do you unify them? How do you turn these people into a nation? It is a divine insight that you have to demand that they build something together. That's how they become one. That, by the way, contains an ingenious insight. And that kind of thinking that we need to create horizontal relationships with people who live at the same time we do and work together on things is so necessary for the world that we live in. And it is the same kind of thinking, in my view, that is behind what I might call the civil society literature. And that is when social theorists explain 
that the richness of human life, the richness of communal life, comes about when we make relationships with people that live in our neighborhoods, that worship in our churches and in our synagogues and mosques. The people who are with us are the people that we have to form relationships with. That's building a community. It is absolutely essential. But I like what you did because you did something else. There's not only a horizontal relationship with our contemporaries that we have to always strengthen, but building a temple also presumes that there is a vertical relationship through time in history, that we have to think of ourselves as the inheritors of a covenantal tradition and also responsible for passing on that covenantal tradition to our descendants. And that is the thing I think is missing from so many of the discussions of loneliness that we have in our culture. It's good that we should make relationships with civil society groups, with our families, with our friends, but I think that family thing is essential because it allows us to see ourselves in time, not only in space. I love that idea. And, you know, it gets to a conversation we actually just had on this podcast with Nellie Bowles from The New York Times, where, you know, we talked about the importance of stories. And I talked about this in the podcast last week as well. If you think about the two kind of great pillars upon which modern society is built, it's Athens and Jerusalem. It's Greek wisdom and Hebrew wisdom. You mentioned uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. You know, one of his penetrating insights into that dichotomy is that Greek wisdom is about systems and Hebrew wisdom is about stories. And I love the idea of stories as things that bind people, not just horizontally as in kind of collecting us all and making us part of a grand narrative, but vertically, as you said, right? Each one of us is finishing up a chapter that the previous generation left unfinished and that we're going to leave unfinished for the next generation. Nowadays, you know, so one of the things that that uh, we talked about with Nellie Bowles was how once upon a time in this country, I feel like we very much appreciated stories to the point where kind of the the guardians of our public discourse, journalists, that was their job. You write a story, right? If you ask a, a journalist, what are you doing? I'm working on a story, right? Now we're at this moment where the job of journalists or academics or whatever is not to make stories, but to deconstruct stories and take them apart and show how they're terrible. And like, this is bad and this is false. Have we forgotten that story is important? Are there forces for making stories in society that we should encourage? How do we deal with the importance of, of story making in this country? The answer to that question is, of course, going to differ in different countries and different societies. But in our country, I think one of the most amazing things that you are doing is helping to remind us that biblical stories have always furnished the imagination, the moral imagination of Americans. And so while the biblical stories are perhaps not as front of mind in the journalists and uh, elite Americans as they once were, nevertheless, they are what have shaped us and made us as a people. So it seems to me that exactly the things that you're doing, trying to bring those stories with new energy and new relevance is what we always have to do. That is our task. So when you talk about feeling at home in time, which I love, right, the idea of feeling like you're in conversation right at this moment with your grandparents and great-grandparents, your grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So let's call that thinking generationally, right? You think in terms of generations. What are some problems, maybe not so urgent problems, but I'm particularly interested in urgent problems. What are some societal problems that we would probably be better at solving if we thought more generationally? Well, I'm thinking in terms of um, just before the pandemic. The, by the way, this has only been accelerated by the pandemic, as, as so many things have. But just before the pandemic, 
there was a body of writing and thinking and discussion that had to do with the loneliness problem. The loneliness problem whose face we then saw primarily through the opioid epidemic and the suicides of despair and the ravages that our society is suffering. You know, in his own troubled and perhaps clumsy way, that was what President Trump was trying to point to in his inaugural address. Now, whether you like President Trump or whether you don't, he's not the only one that saw that. In fact, that is behind so much of the disappointment that our culture is experiencing. So it seems to me that thinking generationally is a way of thinking that starts not at the level of public policy, nor even at the level of big states and communities. It's a way of thinking that starts in families. It's a way of thinking that starts around the kitchen table. And it just seems to me that uh, we should encourage friendship. We should encourage membership in various kinds of groups and societies and, and congregations. But there is something which is missing if people are not becoming parents until they're much older than they once were. You know, the question of our civilization being the inheritance of Greek and Jewish or Hebraic civilization masks the fact that this was an insight shared at, at some level by both Greek and, and uh, Hebraic thinkers. Some of your listeners will remember that the most pressing, dangerous, horrible war of Greek civilization was the war in which the Athenians fought against the Spartans. And in the second year of that war, the Peloponnesian War, the great democratic leader of Athens gives this funeral oration to commemorate the fallen Athenian soldiers. And he talks about the pride of Athens and all of the wonders of the democratic life that are manifest in Athens. And near the end of his speech, when he wants to come around to say, to counsel the citizens who are mourning and say to them, answer the question, what can you do to uh, move on, to heal, to get better? He tells the mothers among them to have children and the fathers among them to be fathers and, and to perpetuate somehow the family stories that they are uniquely responsible for because that's the way that they'll think about the future. For us in America, 2040 is as close to us as 9-11. That's a great point. But no one's thinking about 2040. And we need, to th we, we need to think about that. And I think the most natural way for us to think about that, both at the communal and national level, is by thinking practically about the children that we have to feed lunch every day. It's so interesting. I, I love that tie into the funeral oration, right? Pericles' great funeral oration. It reminds me, actually, of this amazing ancient Jewish tradition that when the Israelites are slaves in Egypt, as the oppression gets worse and worse, their response is not, I mean, it's also resistance in some fashion, but the primary mode of resistance is they just have more and more kids, right? So, and the and the legends get more and more fanciful as you go on or, or, or fun as you go on, right? So they had seven kids, each set of parents had 15 kids, had 25 kids, 30 kids, right? But it's this way of saying that the, the best way to kind of, whether it's resisting oppression or fighting against injustice or simply fighting to secure a future of human flourishing is actually to put your money where your mouth is and invest in the future. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. As I read the Hebrew scriptures, I think that there is an attempt to describe a reality that I don't want to romanticize. Because a person who tends to think of the world in a kind of conservative way, like I do, our danger is that we have the penchant to romanticize this kind of stuff romanticize family values and family life. And I don't think that the Hebrew Bible is guilty of that thing that sometimes I'm guilty of. 
So I want to, I want to try to defend it because of course the entire narrative of the book of Genesis is about this question about how to carry forward a covenantal truth that uh, God revealed to the world in Abraham and that truth would be carried through his children through his sons and uh, one can read the book of Genesis as a way of trying to understand the difficulties and challenges of that kind of perpetuation it seems to me that there's there's not the same kind of romanticizing of the joys of family life that sometimes one can you know one can see and but there's something else right the first couple has fallen the first siblings kill each other right the first exactly the first society implodes yeah yeah exactly so even the nucleus of the mega family of Jacob and his wives and and uh, their handmaidens is a kind of disaster it's a great point so I don't want anyone to see to to hear me as saying that the Bible is uh, inflating the joys of what that kind of thing is. It seems to me it's doing something else, which is not saying that everything that comes from the past is automatically good and virtuous and uh, and to be revered, nor is everything that is passed on worthy of passing on. Of course, we all know in our experiences that every listener who's hearing you and me talk right now will identify with some kind of trauma that is passed on in their family. It's not the case that the past equals the good. Okay, that's that's not the argument I think the Bible is trying to say. It's instead that there is a simple reality which you can grasp if you open the aperture of your mind to see that the past will influence you and your life and your family's life, and you will perforce, of necessity, influence the future. Think about it like this as another way to uh, try to put your finger on what I'm saying. There are some families that are not well-formed, and it's no one's fault, and it's a horrible thing, but there are some couples that get divorced. And when a divorce happens, everyone understands that the children will internalize that somehow. And they will then, as they relate to their spouse when they grow up, carry that. They, they can't not have that experience that's built into them. They might compensate for it or overcompensate for it or repeat it or whatever, but it's inescapable. The past is inescapable. And I think attuning us to that reality for good and for bad is the insight that we derive from the Bible. And that is the way of experiencing the world that I think the technological questions that you started with is militating against. And so we have to try to reclaim that ethic, that way of seeing the world. I think that technology doesn't help us, but the Bible can. Oh, that's such a fantastic insight. It actually makes me think of, you mentioned Rabbi Sachs of Blessed Memory earlier. The last time that I saw him in person before his office stopped letting him travel abroad because he had to finish his Bible translation, right? Every time I spoke to him, he would always end every one of our conversations with some like crazy curveball question or observation that I was expected to react to in real time. It wasn't a test, but I think he found it amusing. So the last time that I, I met with him, I had lunch with him and he says, Ari, <laughs> I won't try to do the accent. <laughs> he says, what do you think about Facebook? This is the question he asked. I had no idea what he was looking for. So I was being clever. So I said, hmm, good question. What do you think about Facebook? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I believe that Facebook was created for the purpose. And then he used the Hebrew term. I believe that Facebook was created for the purpose of Harbatzas Torah. Harbatzas Torah means spreading value, spreading the Bible, spreading the law. Now, it took me a moment to kind of digest that because anyone with eyes in their head and a brain in their skull can tell that there are plenty of things that you can do with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, and Clubhouse and so on 
that are not spreading the Bible and, and positive values. So it really is a question of worldview, right? It's a question of how do you look at things that are inevitably, invariably going to affect us? And in the case of the internet, it's like, or technology or social media, it's like, how can we use these tools for good and not for ill? And so when I hear you say, you know, the past is going to influence you and you are going to bring that into the future. I feel like there's this sense in the culture that ignoring the past or seeing it as something that you can discard and should, if you find it repulsive, that you should discard at will. There's this, I think, misperception amongst people that that means freedom, right? If you discard the past, that's a way of showing how free and liberated you are. When in reality, that's a form of like self-imposed slavery, right? Because it means that you're just abandoning the choice of how the past will impact you. Like the past is going to impact you and saying, I'm not going to interact with it at all. It's just letting somebody make your choice for you. So I'm like a practical person. And I'd love for us to kind of think in terms of solutions, right? So, you know, on this podcast, we talk about the way that the Bible really impacts all these important conversations. So many biblical observances, holidays, laws, stories are designed to help us think not just about ourselves, but actually place us in conversation with grandparents and grandchildren all at the same time. And I definitely think, and I know I know you agree, that this wisdom is completely essential for American society in the coming generation. So if you could recommend, just as a practical matter, if you could recommend like one passage, one story, one law, one something from the Hebrew Bible to people who want to investigate this further, what would it be? Let me recommend one of my favorite short books. I love it. That And this will be, I, I, I presume, one of your favorite books, too. Guys, fire up Amazon. Fire up Amazon. Let's go. <laughs> this is a short book, a classic, that opens up on this question in a way that I found influential to me as I started to think about this. The book is by a historian named Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi, and the book is called Zachor. Right, Z-A-K-H-O-R. Exactly. It's in English letters, a transliteration of the Hebrew command to remember. What does that mean? Be commanded to remember? What, like, honestly, what does that mean? That is the question of the book. And we should just take note of the fact that when God enters into history in the Hebrew Bible, very often the phrase that's deployed is that God remembers so-and-so. Okay, memory and family, that, that's, that's the theme of what we're talking about somehow that God also does that. And to the extent that we're created in his image and likeness, called upon to be like him, that's an amazing thing. So this is a book that's full of scriptural interpretation and analysis. And it was one of the first and most influential books that got me thinking about this question. But let me be even more practical than that and give a piece of advice that my wife and I struggle to follow ourselves But nevertheless, I think it's the most important thing. This is a gift that my parents gave to me. Have dinner as a family with your children every night. It seems to me that that's just the most important thing that our country needs. Wow. Amen. Before we go, John, can you plug your podcast, the Tikva podcast? What are you guys all about? I'm happy to. So the podcast is really a discussion of essays and, you know, things that happen in the world, new books, But very often I have on authors, some figures from public affairs, rabbis, writers, professors, and I talk to them about some of their current work, like the magazine Mosaic. The Tikva podcast is also interested 
in all of the different areas that you should think about if you want to rise to assume the responsibilities of citizenship in the Jewish nation. And that runs from sometimes, you know, Israeli security and defense and foreign policy to Jewish ideas and Jewish history to thinking about the ambient culture in which Jews are trying to grow themselves here in the United States. Incredible. John, thank you so much for joining me. Rabbi Lamb, it's a pleasure. Wow. What more could you possibly add? John said it best. Spend time with your families. I know it's hard, and the pandemic, bad economic circumstances, or maybe even injustice in society means this might be harder to do than ever before. But if anything, that makes it even more important. See yourself as part of a larger story, take control of your past, and in so doing, help guide yourself towards a much better and brighter future. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for joining today. I hope you liked what you heard, and if you do, help us out. Give us a great rating on iTunes. Give us a review, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you leave us a review, let me know on Twitter so I can let the world know that you are amazing and you are one of the 100% absolute best listeners in the world that Good Faith Effort has. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a Good Faith Effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.